I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11. And we will be reading, uh, starting in verse 24 of Luke chapter 11. And once you find uh, that text, Luke eleven twenty four, I would invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's word. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man is to be a sign to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When, you are, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, And as when a lamp is, when its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee was with him, uh, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You are fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms to those things which are within, and behold, everything would be clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and the people walk over them without knowing it. And one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are also witnesses and you consent to the deeds that your fathers did, for they killed them and you built their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I will count it to you. Woe to you, lawyers, for you yourselves have taken the key of knowledge, and you did not enter yourselves, and rather you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, 
lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Some of you uh, might be concerned uh, with how many verses <laughs> we, <laughs> we just read. <laughs> given, given our track record so far in, in Luke, you might be checking your watches and, and looking in fear. I promise you, this was all accounted for throughout the week. Um, <laughs> we're going to be in Luke chapter 11 tonight, uh, just taking that whole section together. Um, and the reason we're taking this section together is because it really forms what, what we would call uh, an inclusio or an inclusion of thought. Uh, you'll notice that that thought starts with kind of a continuation from last week about uh, a little commentary on the demon. Um, but really the inclusio starts in verse 27 where a woman speaks out from the crowd and she says, Blessed are, is the womb that bore you and the breast of which you nursed. And Jesus uh, describes what a true blessedness looks like, hearing his word and doing it. And it forms an inclusio at the end with all these woes that are attributed to the Pharisees and the scribes, which is kind of the, the antithetical opposite example of what it looks like to not hear his word and do it. So the whole section together is one thought, hence why we're going to tackle it as, as one thought, lest we get too bogged down in the details and too, uh, too bogged down with that. So we're going to be taking the whole section as, as one thought, one idea. And if you'd like, let's say, a, a main idea to work through, uh, the title for this text is True Faith. And its substitutes. True faith and its substitutes. As we've been working now through chapter 11, uh, we've just finished going through the prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples so they can walk out discipleship faithfully. And the very next scene is Jesus now turning uh, and interacting with a bunch of Pharisees. Uh, specifically, he's doing miracles, and the Pharisees accuse him of uh, doing these miracles by unrighteous or unclean means. They say, uh, you are doing this by the power of Satan himself, or Belzebul, it says in the text. And Jesus uh, confronts them, and he essentially says, that first of all, that makes no sense. That makes no sense because Satan's household wouldn't be divided against itself. And secondly, uh, I'm not doing it by Belzebul, but if, if I'm doing it by God's power, then you know that you ought to respond and to repent appropriately. And this is the, let's say, opening motif from which the, the verses uh, start off in. So let's consider what a person would be like who receives the healing of Jesus, but who doesn't respond in faith and obedience appropriately. Verse 24 tells us about some unclean spirit that has gone out from a person. And when that, per that spirit goes out from a person, it you know, passes by waterless places, just, just deserts. It's kind of meandering around. It finds nowhere else to go. And so it says, I'm going to go return back to the house from which I came. Now, this is an unclean spirit, so it doesn't have a house, right? Spirits don't haunt houses, as, as our uh, literature would have you believing in, in horror movies and things like that. Uh, demons in the New Testament, they haunt people. They possess people. So the house here is, is the person from whom the demon had been exercised. And when the demon comes back to that person, what is the state it's going to find the person in? If a demon has been cast out, if, it, if someone has uh, seen or experienced the healing power of Jesus, that doesn't necessarily imply that that person has been converted or saved. And how do we know that in this case? Is because the demon has been cast out of the person, and when it returns back to the person, it finds an empty house. Now, what would a demon find if he returned to a person who had been converted and was obedient to God's word? He wouldn't find an empty house. He would find a house that was possessed by the Holy Spirit. And so here this demon finds someone who's experienced God's power, who has done nothing with it, who's essentially an empty swept up, nicely put together house. And what does the demon do? He goes and he grabs seven other spirits, more evil than himself, 
and then they all enter and dwell together there. So you see that a person who's experienced the healing power of God and who has not responded appropriately in faith is in a worse condition when sin catches back up to them. They're in a worse condition when their previous uh, pressure, when their previous uh, situation catches back up. The point here is similar to the, the overall point of last week. There is no neutrality. You cannot remain in a neutral place. When you receive Jesus' teaching, when you see his healing, when you see his work, you can either swear allegiance to him and follow him and be his disciple, or uh, you can just wait around until the slavery which you have just been freed from takes you over again. But there is no point of undefined, permanent, and uh, substantial neutrality. This world has us convinced that there is such a consideration, there is such a position where someone can be neutral before God, And this text tells us that when a demon finds someone who is neutral before God, having nothing possessing him, what will the demon do? The demon will easily overthrow that person and easily take hold and easily take possession. Paul would say, you are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to Christ. But which slavery is better? If you don't like the language of slavery, you are either possessed by Christ, dwelt fully by him, or you are dwelt fully by whatever else you, you worship or obey or do. And the New Testament is clear that everything that is not Christ, not his spirit that's possessing you, is a nefarious, evil, and oppressive kind of possession. It is the kind of thing that is a more evil and a worse state if it was to increase, whereas the increase of the Holy Spirit is blessing and sanctification and growth and vibrancy for a person's life. How different those two pictures are. So Jesus has just finished having a conflict with the Pharisees. He's just given them a case example of why they should respond, why they should repent, why they should believe, uh, of how bad it could be for them, verse 26, if this demon comes and finds them cleaned up and swept up, and yet there's no Holy Spirit in them. And then verse 27 takes us to the only account in this chapter of someone responding to Jesus in faith. And who is the person who responds in faith? It's some nameless woman who cries out from the crowd hearing the teaching of Jesus, and she says, blessed is the womb that bore you, and blessed are the, nurse at, uh, the breasts at which you nursed. What is she saying? She's saying Jesus' teaching is good, and so she's going to elevate not just Jesus, but the woman who bore him and, and all that's associated with him. She's giving a, a wholesale Jewish blessing to Jesus, saying we, we have a wholesale approval upon the teaching that I'm hearing. That's, that's what she's giving to Jesus. Now, lest we skip over that and, and move past that too quickly to the more... Uh, weighty, uh, woe part of the text, it is striking that it's some woman who's not named and some woman who stands in the face of a whole hostile crowd, the rest of whom are the theologians and the Pharisees. So Jesus has just squared off with the Pharisees. They've not responded in faith. The only person in the flow of this thought who responds in faith is some, some random woman, never to be named again. And the rest of the chapter closes with another emphasis on the unrepentant hardness of the Pharisees in their situation. Luke is telling us a couple of things, but, but one of the things Luke is, is clear to not let us miss in his gospel is that the gospel is for everyone, no matter what. This is unlike the current teaching of the day. And when I say the current teaching of the day, the, the Pharisees had constructed a kind of gospel or a kind of salvation that men and wealthy men and theologically sound men can participate in, but children and, and women, no one else can participate in this. If you're a laborer, if you at all associate with the Romans, if you're unclean in any way, you cannot partake in our salvation with God. But if, you are, uh, but if you're a Pharisee, if you're, if you're clean, you can do that. 
Luke is telling us about a kind of faith that Jesus establishes that actually takes the entry bar where, where Paul will say, there is neither slave nor uh, there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. We are all equally the same before the Father. He doesn't consider us any differently. So this is a strange kind of thing that Luke is establishing, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't miss that. And Luke has been kind of underscoring these tones in his gospel so far. You remember that Zechariah is contrasted with his wife, right? Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. His wife does. So Zechariah is struck mute, and his wife has the joy of bearing their son. Mary is contrasted with Joseph. If you look at the other gospel accounts, Joseph has a period in time in which he's not so sure whether to believe Mary's testimony or not. And Mary hears from the angel and basically says, okay, I'll go with it. And, and you'll remember how Luke speaks so highly of her in her situation. This is all to be uh, brought in as we look at how Luke highlights this woman here. And very quickly moves past her because what Jesus is going to say is going to build on and magnify what the woman has said, not uh, undercut it. So if you, if you look at the text, it's, it's tempting in English to, to look at this and say, oh, well, what he's going to say is not that, but rather this. So if you read it, she says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast of which you nursed. And then the, the English says, but he said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, uh, if you read that at the face, it looks like Jesus is undercutting what she has just said and elevating, like, let's say, a different idea. But really what's happening is, is he's transitioning. He's saying not but or in contrast to, but he's saying yes and blessed are those who hear my word and who obey. So he's both elevating his mother, uh, the woman who bore him, elevating the testimony of this woman, and then he's going to add to it, much like he does with m- many of his disciples' teachings. Uh, he's going to add to it and he's going to say that the, the real blessing, the top of the, the cake, the best you can get, is to hear the word of God and to keep the word of God, or hear in such a way that you obey. Now, if you are at all uh, remembering some early parts of Luke's gospel, Luke has this recurring theme of obedience to the heard word. So you have John the Baptist, who's portrayed with us uh, in Luke's gospel, and John the Baptist goes to the the Israelites of his day, and he says, repent and believe, uh, and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what John the Baptist's testimony is to the Jewish people of his day. Luke introduces John the Baptist, then Jesus comes on the scene, he says kind of the same thing. And then Jesus has this amazing parable in Luke's gospel of the soils, right? Where there's multiple soils that all hear the same message, one soil that responds, and then Jesus says, uh, then be careful how you hear, right? Take, take heed of the soils, be careful then how you hear. The thrust is, how you hear is, is critical to, to how you actually live out your faith. Uh, one way we could say this is, in Luke's mind, and really in the mind of all of the New Testament writers, faith is a, is a tactile thing. It's something that you can observe in the world, in someone's life. If they have faith, James would say, if they have a kind of faith that saves, their faith is visible and obvious and undeniable to the people around them. And that's to be contrasted with a faith that is a profession only or a hearing only, which doesn't actually work itself out in obedience or, or love of God or love of God's word or love of neighbor. A faith that is confessional or auditory only and doesn't work itself out let's say, through your members and through your body, is not the kind of faith that Luke has in view. It's not the kind of obedience that Christ has in view. There's no such thing as a disciple that doesn't have their whole person on the line in obedience towards the word of God. Jesus says, blessed are those who hear the word of God, but not just hear, hear in such a way that they obey, such a a way that they keep the word of God. That idea will come back up later with a a different illustration. And Jesus is then going to turn 
And he's going to say to the crowds, which are now larger and, and increased, and he's essentially going to say uh, a wholesale condemnation on uh, this group called this generation. Now, in Luke's gospel, this generation is, is kind of throughout this whole text, but it comes up later and it comes up throughout uh, the rest of the gospel. Who, who is Jesus talking about when he says this generation? So if we just look at the text in verse 29, Jesus says, This generation is an evil generation, for it seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. Now, who are the people who we just read about that are seeking a sign despite the fact that they've already seen a sign? Do you remember last week, Jesus cast out a demon? And there's a couple of people who say maybe he does it by Beelzebul. And there's some people who say, well, do another one. Do something else. Do another sign. And Jesus is saying, well, those kinds of people, the people who seek some sign after I've already given plenty of signs, that's part of this evil generation. That's part of this generation who I'm talking about. He, he probably is not talking about the woman who just spoke out from the crowd and confessed uh, blessedness to Jesus' teaching. He's probably not talking about his disciples who are obedient to his word and following him. He's not talking about everyone present in the room. He's talking about the people who are going to be characterized by all of these things that are listed out that are under his hearing. So people who look for a sign and no sign will be given. Uh, People who hear his teaching and who don't repent. Uh, People who are characterized like the people of Nineveh, uh, verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be a sign to this generation. Now, what's... what's, uh, what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to insert things that aren't in Luke's gospel but are in other gospels. Do so you remember Matthew? Uh, Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. That's not quite the sign that Jesus is talking about here. But Jesus is saying that he, as a person who's delivering a message, is the sign. So if you look at the text, Jonah is the sign to the people of Nineveh. And if you remember in Jonah in the Old Testament, the people of Nineveh don't see Jonah get swallowed by the whale, and they don't see Jonah come out of the whale. They just see Jonah once he arrives in their town preaching repentance, right? That's what they see of Jonah. Well, how is Jesus like Jonah? Well, Jesus is the one walking through the towns of Jerusalem on his way towards Jerusalem, and he's, he's telling everyone, repent, you're in sin, you need to repent of your sin, and you need to believe on Christ in, in faith. And as far as people hear that, they're, they're in obedience to his word, they're, they're good. But if not, they're just like the people of Nineveh, except for the fact that the people of Nineveh were better because the people of Nineveh hear Jonah's words and, and repent and respond to Jonah's words, whereas the people who Jesus is talking to, this crowd that's forming around him, they don't hear his words, they don't respond to his words. And I'm, again, I'm not saying every single person in the crowd, but as a wholesale group, there's this, there's this a massive amount of the crowd that is not hearing, not obeying the words of Christ. So Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh by his teaching and their hearing his teaching. So Jesus, by his teaching and by his preaching, is a sign to the people of this generation. Now, how, how bad is it to reject the teaching of Jesus? We've seen uh, a couple of times where, well, we've seen the one time where Jesus goes and he says, uh, it would be better for Sodom on that day than it would be for people who heard my teaching and who rejected it, right? Here's a teaching very similar. Verse 31, the queen of the south... That's the queen of Sheba in the Old Testament. She will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation. Why? To condemn them. Because while they had the teaching delivered to them, look at what she does. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So there's people who Jesus is going to, preaching the gospel to, that don't want to hear his word. And let's contrast that with some person who wasn't an Israelite, wasn't, 
wasn't at all exposed to Yahweh by divine revelation, she goes to Solomon to seek his wisdom. She's going to rise up in judgment at the generation that had God incarnate dwell amongst his people and preach repentance to them. She's going to say, you are fools for having missed that. I had to go to the ends of the earth to go find the wisdom of God. And here you are with him dwelling in your midst and you won't listen. She's going to rise up in judgment with the people of this generation so that she condemned them. She would condemn them. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Whatever wisdom Solomon provided, whatever teaching he provided, was a dim picture of the salvation that Jesus is here offering. Jesus is the the concrete substance of whatever else Solomon was hoping for. So the Queen of Sheba and Solomon can look together at hope in the future. And here Jesus is the greater, the one greater than Solomon, the one wiser than Solomon, the one with the better offer than Solomon. And these people won't hear him out. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation to condemn them. Why? Because they repented when Jonah came and preached to them. But something greater than Jonah is here. So the people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, two non-Israelite, non-Jewish peoples, are going to rise up in judgment against the Jewish people who hear the word of God and who don't listen to and repent of their sin. We have a couple of of teachings in the text that are uh, like this throughout Luke's gospel. I mentioned one, the Sodom and Gomorrah will be better on the day of judgment for them than it would be for the people who've seen Jesus' ministry and who don't respond. We've also had uh, another encounter where Jesus opens up a scroll, the scroll of Isaiah, and he says, this is fulfilled today in your midst. And the people rise up against him. And what does he say? He says, remember when Elijah went to the Gentiles to save them? Remember when Elisha went to the Gentiles to save them and not to the Israelites? Well, Jesus is kind of playing this out in his ministry. He's constantly highlighting the obvious repentance that the Jewish people should have because Jesus was sent to them. He's their Messiah. And yet they constantly reject him. And there's these other people, Gentiles and people who are not part of the Jewish nation, that respond to Jesus, to God, to the gospel in faith. There's these through lines, if you will, in Luke's gospel. Remember, Luke is a Gentile author writing to a Gentile. So he likes including these people who are examples of Gentile faith throughout the Old Testament. And here he goes with the people of Nineveh and the queen of the south. Both are examples of faith. And here then Jesus is going to turn his teaching from the same basic point that he just made. Be careful how you hear so that you obey. He's going to say something similar but with a different picture. Be careful how you see so that you actually receive and absorb the light and it gets inside of you. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but rather they would put it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. What's the conclusion? Okay, Jesus, you're talking about lights and lamps. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, the whole body is filled with light. Pretty straightforward. This would be similar to hearing and getting it all the way down to where you process it and obey it. But what if your eye is unhealthy? What if you are blind to the light? Well, then it doesn't matter how much light is shining on the outside. It doesn't get inside. The light doesn't get inside of you. If your eye is unhealthy, or here the text says when it is bad, then your body will be full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light that is within you be darkness. That's a a Jewish or a a really a Greek sentence construction. It doesn't make much sense to us in English, but I think you get the, the thrust of what he's saying. Be careful how you see, so that you see in such a way in which the light actually gets inside of you. And be careful how you see, so that you're not getting a lot of light input on the outside, but it's not actually making its way down and inside of you. 
or here as, as Luke has constructed it, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. It's basically saying be careful lest there actually be no light inside of you. Lest there be nothing inside of you that's getting from the outside in. It's the same kind of teaching. Be careful how you hear in such a way that how you hear affects what you do. Be careful how you see so in such a way that what you see actually gets inside of you and affects who you are and what you're like. Discipleship then is, once again, not something you can passively participate in, passively receive. Discipleship is something that is whole person demanding. The light, when it gets inside of a person, it goes all throughout the inside of the person and it wholly possesses them. This is not a dark, empty vessel like what the Spirit found earlier in the text. This is someone who's possessed by light. There's no room for another possession. There's no room for another uh, occupant. It's fully possessed by the light. So should be the people who see the light of this world and who observe him. They should receive him and be affected by him. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, why does Jesus teach this here? And why is this all prompted by this woman, right? There's only one interaction that's happened so far in the text. The woman has given a, a shout out from the crowd and Jesus has kind of launched into this, uh, this uh, series of uh, instructions. And now Luke's going to tell us essentially why did Jesus preface this all before uh, to this crowd that seemingly has done nothing besides, you know, a couple of the Pharisees have accused him earlier on in the text. Why does Jesus launch into this long discourse about be careful how you hear, be careful how you see? Well, because there's a lot of people present who are going to observe basically the entirety of Jesus' ministry and never hear and see how they're supposed to. And Luke's about to give us all the examples of that. Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. This looks like a good start. Some Pharisee has heard what Jesus is saying. And maybe he's like, hey, come over for dinner. I'd like to talk about that more. But Jesus is going to do something that's going to intentionally set the Pharisee off. Jesus is going to go and he's not going to wash himself. He's not going to uh, wash his hands before dinner, a ritual cleansing, which, by the way, is optional. It's not required. Jesus still fulfills the whole law. This is an optional interpretation of what it means to keep some of the law, and Jesus is just choosing to ignore the rabbinic tradition on it, which doesn't put him in sin. It just puts him outside of rabbinic uh, comfort, and that's going to trigger the rest of this response. So Jesus goes. He doesn't wash before dinner. In verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. Verse 39, and now Jesus is going to go on a monologue, basically like they fell right into his trap, right into the place where he wanted them. And now he's going to tell them why everything that they have a problem with is a problem. And the things that they should have a problem with seems to be escaping their notice. Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the inside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed, or sorry, you cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. So this is a, a teaching we are familiar with, right? The Pharisees are whitewashed tombs. They are people who are clean on the outside, but really rotten and corrupt on the inside. Uh, this doesn't seem like news to us because we've, you know, we're familiar with how the Pharisees are. We think of the Pharisees as the bad guys in the gospel. We, we typically aren't sensitive to the fact that these are the theologians of the day. But the Pharisees are the people who every other Jew would have looked to for direction and guidance when it comes to religious matters. This would be like uh, Jesus squaring off with the top religious institution of the day and, and constantly putting them to shame constantly exposing them for their hypocrisy. And here he accuses them of basically having this perfect picture on the outside and having nothing substantive on the inside. They don't actually, they're actually dark on the inside because the light which is outside of them is not getting in, right? They're clean on the outside, they're well maintained, uh, but they are rotten on the inside. 
And he says, you are fools, because did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Conclusion, verse 41, but then give us alms to the things which are within you, and the rest of the world will be clean to you. So Jesus is essentially teaching them a true teaching, which is this ritual washing, don't forget what it points to. The ritual washing is supposed to point you to the fact that you're supposed to be holy and blameless before Yahweh, your God. And the ritual washing is merely a, a, a picture or a reminder of the fact that God is perfectly clean, perfectly holy. And God's not only concerned about this ritual washing, he's concerned about the inside, which as I observe, you have done the outside washing, but you have not cleaned the inside. Here's Jesus going straight for the, the throat. And the Pharisees need to hear this message. They are clean, as it were, perfectly put together, and yet missing left, right, and center when it comes to the important things. And here Jesus launches onto a series of accusations, a series of uh, woes, if you like, condemning them for all of the violations they've committed. <coughs> Verse 42, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe or give alms of dill and rue and every herb, and you have neglected justice and the love of God. So just uh, to, to understand what Jesus is accusing them of there, the Pharisees uh, and, and all Jews are required to tithe. This is some portion of their crops or their income that is to be given to the Levites and to the Jewish temple to participate in the, the payment for the Levite salaries so they don't you know, get, go get other jobs. Uh, for the upkeep of the temple, for the upkeep of the sacrifices. This is essentially the economy of Israel centering on the worship of Israel. This is how it's supposed to function. And there's requirements that you're supposed to tithe uh, 10% of, let's say, your general crop. But if you add up all the individual tithes, it gets closer to like uh, 15 to 20% of the total wealth of an Israelite every year would go towards the, the Levitical temple. And the Pharisees are, are so good at tithing, they're down to the the mint and the rue and even the little garden herbs that they would grow for like a hobby in their backyard. So things that they don't have to tithe, they're tithing, lest they be out of step with God's law. And yet, if you were to read the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you would see that the religious people of their day are not guilty of not keeping the tithe, not guilty of not fasting, not guilty of not keeping the Sabbath. They are guilty of neglecting justice and the love of God. And how does the love of God come out in their, uh, their, their how does their dislove of God or their, uh, their dislike for God come out? It comes out in the fact that they don't love their neighbor because they uh, oppress all these poor Israelites and they're keeping the tithe perfectly and they neglect justice, which would be to do right by the poor, the widow, the orphan, all those categories in Israel. And they neglect justice, which exposes their neglect of loving God's law. They actually don't love God's law as much as they look like on paper because there's this whole secret thing that they're keeping closed, the, the hatred within their hearts. And that comes out in the fact that Jesus tells them the one thing they did was good, right? The tithing, these, the, all these small herbs, they're good. Uh, you ought to have done this without neglecting all these other things. You ought to have tithed, as you do, without, you know, dropping the ball when it comes to justice for the poor of my people. You can feel the, the obvious miss there, right? Imagine the people who study the Torah and the Old Testament scriptures the most, getting all of the exact nuanced details of how this law connects with that law and how you observe that, and just dropping the ball when it comes to loving their neighbor. Dropping the ball when it comes to treating poor Israelites with compassion and love. Here they go, just dropping the ball. 
Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the elaborate greetings in the markets. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and the people walk over them without knowing it. The problem with the Pharisees, not only that they have this external observance and this internal corruption, but that their external observance and internal corruption actually doesn't stop with them. It actually gets onto other people in Israel. Why is this the case? Because they're the teachers of Israel. They're the people who are responsible for guarding the theology and the practice of the Israelites, to making sure that other Israelites get right the law of God and know how to be right before God. And because they're so unclean with their pride and corruption and their lack of love for others, this has now bled onto other Israelites. And no one knows that they're unclean or that they're getting things wrong. These Pharisees are like unmarked graves, graves you don't know you're walking over. And if you walk over an unmarked grave, if you come into contact with an unmarked grave, it makes you unclean. It would make you unclean before God. And so the Pharisees are like people, are, are like these unmarked graves. People are coming in contact with them and not realizing how defiled they're becoming by interacting with the Pharisees. The Pharisees get these elaborate greetings. They get the best seats in the table. And the people who are hosting them at the table and greeting them in market don't realize that these Pharisees are the very reason they're corrupt and they don't understand how to love God. The Pharisees are getting their uncleanness kind of all over everyone else. And this is a big problem because the teachers are the, are the guardians of the truth of God's word. One of the, the big accusations by the Old Testament prophets is that the sheep uh, of Israel are led astray by the shepherds who are wicked and who abandoned their post. They don't love God's sheep. They don't love God's people because they would sell them out and they will abuse them and they will exploit them because they can. This is the problem or one of the problems in Israel. Hosea, the prophet, speaks and he says, my people don't know me and they don't have any love for me because the leaders who should have taught them how to love me have neglected and abandoned their duties. Here we have why Israel is in the condition that it's in when Jesus comes on the scene. How did they get here? Well, it wasn't that Israel revolted against the religious authorities and now they are some apostate nation. The Israelites listened to their religious authorities and their religious authorities were wicked and led them astray. And that's how you get to the place where Nobody knows Jesus. There's a couple of faithful, and, and everyone else is really off put by this Jesus guy because he's teaching things in contrast with their religious leaders. Whereas these Pharisees should have been the, the guardians of awaiting the Messiah and ready for him when he came, and yet they led a whole nation astray away from the Messiah. Here's the generation that Jesus is talking about, the people who are responsible for that kind of deception. And if you think that Jesus' words are striking here, uh, he gets a little worse. A lawyer decides to speak up. I don't know what would motivate a lawyer to speak up in this moment <laughs> because Jesus is clearly not, not in the mood for expunging or absolving anyone right now. He's, he's kind of going for it. And this lawyer speaks up and essentially says, um, <laughs> excuse me, teacher, uh, <laughs> you don't mean us, right? Surely, surely you don't mean us. Uh, in saying these other things, you seem to be implicating that we are also guilty. Just would like to clarify if you are or are not saying that kind of thing. And uh, Jesus essentially says the exact same thing, and he's going to substitute lawyer for Pharisee. Uh, lawyer is a strange term. We think about lawyers only in the legal system. If it helps you, uh, you can think about a theologian. These are, so the Pharisees would be like the practical theologians of the day. They interact with the people. The lawyers and the scribes, they're like the people who write research papers and who write books and stuff. They're the people who sit like behind the lines and help the Pharisees to interpret God's law. So these are the theologians. 
So Jesus says, verse 46, Woe to you theologians also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself would not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You write books about how to interpret the law. You write theology treatises about how to be a more faithful Israelite. And yet all of these things are things that you would not dare to observe on the ground yourself. What would this look like? This is like uh, telling someone they're unclean if they interact with a Roman of any kind. And yet not being sensitive to the fact that some Israelites have to sell in a Roman market in order to make a living for their family. So these Israelites are constantly unclean, constantly unable to worship in the temple. And yet the theologians from, from way back behind where they don't have to do that to make a living will tell so-and-so they're in sin or so-and-so they're unclean so they can't come to the temple and worship. They have heaped a burden upon someone else that they themselves could not dare to touch. But because they're in a privileged position where they don't need to touch the burden, they're going to throw that burden onto someone else because, you know, they're trying to just be faithful to the law of God as best they can. It's a guise. It's a rue. Woe to you theologians, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Now, why is that problematic? Because you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds that your fathers committed. For you, for they killed the prophets and you built their tombs. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that building the tomb of a prophet somehow makes you guilty of also killing that prophet. Um, if that was the case, then uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and guys like that after Jesus' crucifixion would be in a lot of trouble because they help to bury Jesus. The point here is that these theologians made sure that after the prophets were dead and buried and their scriptures were written and recorded in the Old Testament, these theologians make sure that in their generation they're going to build tombs to these prophets, monuments to basically say, we're on the side of the prophets. We're with them, we agree with them in their message. And Jesus is saying, you're actually not in step with the prophets just because you build the tomb. You, are, you, if the prophet was alive today, you would have been like your fathers who killed those prophets. You would be in the class of person who would have put them to death, just like the people of that day put them to death. This is interesting. Jesus is saying, uh, you like to think of yourselves as the, uh, the inheritors of the tradition of the prophets. And if you trace bloodline, yes, the Pharisees are the direct descendants of many of the prophets. But there's this problem, which is that theologically and practically, they are totally different from the prophets. They're not faithful. They don't fear God. And they've developed this whole system where they can convince themselves the prophets would have been on their side and not on the side of the people who they're over. The Pharisees see themselves as the inheritors of the tradition, and Jesus is saying, you're actually culpable in the sin of killing these prophets. Therefore, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, some of who they will kill and persecute. Why does, the, why does, why does God do this in his wisdom? You'll notice there Jesus links the apostles Lest you think that Jesus is being unwise in his assessment of this group, he's being unfair and, and judging them for something they're not actually guilty of. He says, well, the prophets were sent. They were sent to your fathers. Your fathers put them to death. What's going to indict this generation? What's going to indict these people? Well, they're going to kill the apostles who Jesus is about to send to them after he dies and resurrects and ascends on high. He's going to send the apostles. And these Pharisees are going to kill many of those same apostles. And these Pharisees are also going to kill the Son of God who's in their midst. So how do we know that Jesus' assessment of the Pharisees is accurate? Well, his prediction comes perfectly true. God sent to them prophets and sent to them apostles, which he's going to send to them, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Notice the future tense language. That gives us the indication that Jesus is predicting that the apostles he's going to send are going to be killed by these Pharisees. 
they are guilty of the sins of their fathers by their own action and complicity with uh, their father's uh, wickedness. Why does, Jesus, why does Jesus say this? What is, what is the thing that's at risk? Verse 50, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Now, how far does that prophetic revelation of God's law extend? It extends from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Now, we're not going to go look at those texts, but you'll remember uh, Genesis 4, Abel is killed by Cain, his brother. So Abel's blood is shed. And then there's this lineage of people who continue to kill the people of God and who continue to favor the enemies of God. And this lineage extends all the way into and through Israel because if you look at the people who killed Zechariah, that's Israelites. The Israelite king and the Israelite other prophets conspire against Zechariah and stone him in between the temple. They stone him between the altar and the sanctuary. So inside the temple, this guy's put to death by stoning. And many would speculate that this is actually the Zechariah who brings up that one of those last minor prophet books uh, in your Old Testament. So you have from the beginning of Genesis to the end of the Old Testament revelation, the whole prophetic indictment of God on his people calling them to repentance is going to come upon the people who are going to continue that tradition and put Jesus and his apostles to death, who are the actual inheritors of the message of the prophets. That the whole line of guilt is charged against these people. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So Jesus is talking about the people who are present in his day, alive right then, that generation. But the people, not just everyone who's alive of that day. He's talking specifically to the people who are alive that day and who continue in the tradition and guilt of their fathers. All of the, let's say, punishment that's been held back and delayed is going to come upon that generation because they're going to commit the ultimate sin, which is killing the Son of God himself and the apostles whom he sends to them. They're going to tip the cup of God's wrath and overflow it so that it ultimately pours out upon them. They're not guilty of the sin of the people generations before. They're simply in the tradition of, and therefore, let's say, co-conspirators in that sin. But it's really the sin of killing Jesus and his apostles that's going to be it for this generation. But nevertheless, they're in that tradition. They're, they're not inheritors of the prophets. They're inheritors of the apostate Israelites. That's, that's really what they're in the tradition of. What are you lawyers? For you have taken away the key of knowledge. And you did not enter yourselves, but that's not the worst part. You also hindered others who were entering. The theologians were entrusted with the teaching of God's law to teach the people that God desires mercy and faithfulness, not just sacrifice and obedience. Uh, and by the way, I mean external obedience and observance of sacrificial law. God doesn't just require that, but the, the theologians hide that all away. They take the key and they bury it. And not only does that prevent them from entering into good fellowship with God, it also prevents a whole generation of Israelites from being led astray and captivated by their lies. So a wholesale indictment on the political order and the religious order of Jesus' day. These are a people who are guilty of all the things Jesus has spoken about them. Uh, if you're concerned about Jesus right now, uh, one commentator observes that uh, we, should, we should be asking questions right now. Isn't this Jesus, gentle and lonely of heart? What happened to him, you know, a couple of chapters ago? He's, that commentator says, yes, this is him, but he's not a wimp. He stands up actually for his people as a, as a good shepherd would. 
So he stands in the place of the false shepherds, the wolves in sheep's clothing, and in between them and the sheep, and he's going to defend them even at cost of his own life. He's gentle and lowly, but when he needs to, he's a fierce lion who will defend his people. And here he goes on the defense. We might observe that it's easy for us to look at Jesus' words and conclude something like, seems rather harsh, maybe patience could have been exercised, things like this. And we, we need to recognize that Jesus is stepping in as a, as a faithful uh, banner carrier for the truth of God's word. He's stepping in at the right time and saying all the right things to these people of what's true of them. But that's not just true of Jesus. That's actually true of all these prophets in the Old Testament. If you go read some of those prophets in the Old Testament, you'll find out very quickly that they have a, have a knack for doing things that are just offensive enough to make Israelites with higher sensibilities offended. And they launch from that offense into their prophetic message, namely, and you're guilty of far worse for your adultery against God. Ezekiel is, is famous for this. He, he, he portrays Israel as a, a giant prostitute who, who prostitutes herself out to all the nations. And if you're thinking, well, not all the Israelites, Ezekiel, you've got to relax with that imagery. And Ezekiel is saying, that's my point. Everyone is guilty. They're all done. But, but his point is a clear message that kind of strikes at the heart of people, strikes their sensibilities. And then if you get offended by the less offensive thing, it kind of is the sweet spot to show you how dull and blind you are to the thing that should offend you, namely Israelites being apostate. Or as here happened, the Pharisees get offended that Jesus doesn't wash, but they're not offended by the fact that they oppress almost every Israelite into poverty and despair and religious blindness. The thing they should have gotten, they didn't get, and they get offended with Jesus when he doesn't do the thing that was totally optional in the law. Here's the guilt. The Pharisees think of themselves as the inheritors of the tradition of the prophets. It's easy for us to do something like that. When I say us, uh, think about everyone who you talk to today who has a certain conviction about something in the world. And almost every group, everyone, can find a way to get Jesus on their side. Jesus is pro whatever you want him to be pro. And there's a lot of people who would claim that religious authority who would say Jesus is on my side with this thing. And in fact, if you go look at the historical Jesus, he's not even close to that side of the thing. Just like if you were to go read the message of the prophets, you would find out they're exactly against the kind of people who the Pharisees are. And that the Pharisees are convinced in thinking that the prophets would have been on their side. You notice how obvious the contrast there is. A good dose of history and true reading of God's word would help us with that. It'd be a good antidote. But also, it would be to observe that when, when someone's alive, they're often safer in the ground. When, when people are alive and, and, and reforming and causing revival and engaging in hostile political things and in sin in people's hearts, it's a lot safer to read about them in a book after they've been dead for hundreds of years than it is to be existing with them while they're alive. The way one uh, man writes, he says, desperate times would call for faithful men, not for careful men. The careful men would come later and they'll write the biographies about the faithful men, lauding them for all their courage. But the desperate times, the times of great tension, call for faithful men, not careful men. Why? Careful men would always question and double-step and doubt the thing that needs to happen. They'd be worried about getting their hands too dirty. And the faithful men just say, I don't care. I'm going to at least do what I know to do now for faithfulness. Now, what examples do we have of this in Scripture? We have Jesus. We have the prophets. Was Jael not more faithful when she struck Sisera in the head with the stake? 
And yet we have theologians who will write treatises about how Gile might have been in sin for killing Sisera because, well, you know, you're not supposed to kill other people. Yet Sisera was an oppressor of Israel in the book of Judges. He was going to rape women. He was going to kill their children. And here is Jael, faithful and true, who kills him when she can. Is she not more faithful and more courageous than some Israelites of her day? She's not very careful. It's not very careful to kill the general of an opposing army. But it is faithful. Is not Rahab faithful when she lies to the king of her city? And she says, actually, the spies have gone that way. If you hurry, you can catch them. And she deceives the the men of Jericho, and she leads the Israelites out by another way. Is she not faithful? And is it not strange that people will think about Rahab and ask the question, is she sinning or not sinning when she lies before her king? Careful people can do that kind of speculation, but faithful people would just go out on the ground and live it. Were the Hebrew midwives not faithful when they decided to uh, scorn the commands of Pharaoh and save the Hebrew children? They're not very careful. It's not a very careful thing to do. You could speculate whether that's a good relationship between them and government and should they submit or not. You know, they didn't have Paul. They were faithful. They were faithful to what they knew they ought to have done. Careful people are not very good bedfellows when it comes to being faithful in the line of fire. Sometimes careful people are a, a, quite a plague on the church. Not to say that they're bad. We need careful people. And carefulness is a good thing. This does not mean do whatever you want and don't think about it. But it's easy if you're behind the lines, far behind the lines, to be very careful with your theological speculations and estimates. And it's a lot harder when you're in the trenches engaging in winning of souls and talking to the lost and engaging in a culture that is hostile towards God. It's a lot easier to slip up and to make a mistake. And if there's a lot of careful people behind the lines making you feel guilty and sinning every time you do something not in the perfectly precise way, Well, that's not super helpful. You just need someone to get in the trenches with you and be faithful with you. And remember that we have a good, gracious God who's who's got a big open arms to forgive people if you screw up. We need to be faithful in this generation. We need to, let's say, prioritize faithfulness over carefulness, not to abandon carefulness, but to prioritize faithfulness over it. Faithfulness will get you in all kinds of trouble with the world. But it will align you very carefully with a strong tradition of people in Israel's history who caused all kinds of problems and yet changed the world. Think of the prophets and all of the uncareful things that they do. Think of the apostles and all of the seemingly foolish things that they do. If you like church history, you can think about all the preachers who stand in the way of the hostile world system, whether it be Rome or whether it be uh, hostile Gentile forces, they stand in every way faithful, and yet people are willing to today to dismiss them because they didn't match up perfectly with something we would have really liked them to do. I can't tell you how many people I've heard uh, scorn Luther for some of the things that he said, and I'm not saying that Luther should say many of the things that he said, but it's a lot easier to, from 500 years later, evaluate the morality of some of those statements And not just appreciate that we stand on the shoulders of a giant who was willing to stand for the faith. We could echo that with with many in church history. And there's so many examples of that kind of faithful tradition. Here's what I want you to, to think about. As we consider Jesus as aligning himself with the faithful message of the prophets, and he's going to align his apostles with that same tradition, he's going to he contrasts that in this text sharply 
with those who profess to hear his word and who actually are all kinds of disobedient to it. The scribes and the lawyers and the Pharisees are, are very, very careful, very, very precise, very, very exact, to the point where it completely neutralizes and causes their faithfulness to go by the wayside. We could say that their carefulness and their exactness cause them to be very unfaithful to what they should have been doing. And yet, and yet it's so tempting for us to, to be like that. To, to prioritize carefulness, not wanting to step on toes, not wanting to offend people, and not prioritizing faithfulness when, when you really need it. If you think about uh, soldiers on the front lines, think about World War I is one of the most horrible wars, but it's a great example of this kind of thing, where you have this trench warfare going on. They would dig trenches, and then they would you know, set the boundary marker a little forward, and then under the cover of night, and when the artillery was reloading, they would go and dig another trench and advance the line, sometimes just a few feet. And they would do this over and over and over again, trying to win ground. Now, what kind of person would you want in the trenches with you? Would you want someone who wants to examine the finer ways in which guns are made and how they fire and how exactly they work? Or would you want someone who just knows where the enemy is and who they're shooting at? There's a difference between faithfulness and carefulness. When you're a Christian on the ground in the hospital system, in the education system, in the business world, when you are on the ground faithfully laboring for Christ, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to do something that you shouldn't do. You're going to say something you shouldn't say. But if you do it in the name of faithfulness, that's a much better error, a much better kind of mistake to make than it would be if you did nothing for the sake of carefulness. If you share the gospel, you're going to offend some people. If you tell people what God really thinks about marriage, you're going to offend some people. But my encouragement to you is to be faithful rather than careful. Where do we draw encouragement from this? Why do we do do this kind of thing when we live? Jesus' faithfulness gets him put up on a cross. Jesus is ultimately faithful in such a way that any, any slip-ups we have as we try to walk this Christian life out are actually no big deal because Jesus is the perfect source of righteousness. Carefulness is a, a desire or an attempt to be 100% perfect. And faithfulness is a kind of a bold statement of, I know I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm counting on his righteousness anyway, and I'm going to walk this thing out as best I can in the meantime. There's a certain trust that you need on his righteousness, his justification, to walk that kind of thing out. Jesus is our our hope, our encouragement. Not only that, he's the one who goes before us as a model of how to be faithful. Here, if you want encouragement for how to speak to religious authorities who abuse scripture to their end, look no further than how Jesus addresses the Pharisees. It's not the same tone he addresses a sinful woman caught in adultery with. Why? Why? Well, because some people need this kind of tone when you're engaging with them. That doesn't mean you're not faithful. It means you're being faithful in that scenario. And different circumstances, different people, different sins call for different responses. And we can look to Jesus for a a whole host of examples of how to treat those things. At the end of the day, we need to stand really in the lineage of all of the, the heroes of Israel's faith and ultimately the heroes of the apostles' faith and into the church who are faithful to the end, even when, even when we can often look at pieces and question whether that was perfect or not. If you live your life like that, you're going to live your life walking on eggshells, hoping that no one can look back at you from 20 years from now or 30 years from now or 100 years from now. You're going to wonder what the world would think of you. That's not a good way to live. It'll cause you to probably do a whole lot of nothing because everything you do is going to incur some form of risk, something you might not do perfectly. Think about sharing the gospel with your coworker and you worry if you're going to say the wrong thing or step on a sin that they don't know about or 
you don't know how that's going to come across. That could totally cease you from sharing the gospel with someone. That could totally prevent you from engaging someone who really does need to hear the message of Christ. If you don't have a perfect defense for your Christian worldview, that might prevent you from engaging with someone who has a very strong defense for their atheist worldview or naturalist worldview. But faithfulness says, I don't really care about all that. I'm just going to do the thing that I know I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to trust the rest of God, the rest of his spirit, the rest of his work, which works alongside you. And you can know this, that as you are faithful, he is way more faithful. As you are laboring in this thing, he has actually already gone ahead to till the soil. He's actually already gone ahead with his spirit. He's gone into all the world, and he actually commissions us out in this way, as we will read at the end of our service. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So thus, go forth and make disciples. The, the risk is not that we would cease to gain authority for Christ. It's actually already his. So that's not really a risk. So we just have to be faithful to living into that thing as we are called to do. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word, particularly for texts like this that seem to challenge our ideas of right and wrong, that seem to challenge our vision of what pious living looks like, that challenge our identity and our idea of what it looks like to be a Christian who's faithful unto you, obedient to your word. Lord, I pray that we would obey with all that we are and all that we have, that you would bind our hearts in affection towards you, that we would love you, we would love your word, that we would love your law, that we would be faithful to the task with which you have entrusted us. Lord, I pray that as we consider what we have been given, what you have put in front of us, that you would give us a high vision of how we live faithfully in our space, whether that be in our living situation, in our work situation, in our family situation, wherever we are that we are called to be faithful, would you give us a vision of what that looks like? Would you cause us to be a people that are faithful? And would you, by your grace, assist us in being careful? We pray this in your name. Amen.